it is great to be uh, with you. And uh, coming back here, we've recognized uh, how much we've needed this trip and how much of our, our home church and how much home Midlothian really is for us. I mean, for our family, this is home. And uh, so it's great to be back. And, and we love you very much. And we, um, we, yeah. So it's great to bring God's word. We've been uh, going through uh, Genesis uh, in our, our church, Christ Church of Wiesbaden. Uh, there in Wiesbaden. And uh, so this morning we're going to study Genesis 44, which is a really dramatic passage of Scripture, on up through 45, 15. Uh, and the drama of it reminds me of the World Cup in 2010. Uh, it was a typical World Cup for the USA. I got into watching soccer because my wife is German, and so I figured it would be a way to, to bridge the gap, And uh, although she understands the NFL very well. Um, <laughs> Not a lot of German girls do, but she does. And um, uh, anyway, in the 2010 World Cup, uh, there are three games in the prelims, and uh, the United States, I think, um, uh, lost the first one, tied the second one, and then in this last final game, uh, they were tied uh, deep into this game. Uh, it was in stoppage time, and it's still tied, either 0-0, 1-1, or something like that. And I'm just thinking... You know, this is just so it's a typical mediocre showing for the USA on the world stage. We have 320 million people. Can't we find 11 guys who can play this game? And um, the girls can, can't we? And um, anyway, uh, so it's just a thoroughly depressing game as we're this close to being eliminated. And the other team had controlled the ball pretty much the whole uh, match. And uh, then somebody just... One of the people on the other team uh, made an errant pass on a routine pass, and one of our guys just stuck his leg out and got a foot on it, got a toe on it, and, and, and was able to, to send it downfield a little bit. And then another one of our guys booted it downfield. And so the, 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 the camera goes onto the ball, and it's one of those decisions of, is the goalie going to come out on it or not? What's the best play to make? And and, uh, it, and and there's nobody else except for just one guy in the corner and the goalie uh, in, the, in the camera picture. And the ball's kind of over here, and it gets kicked over here. And then out of nowhere, out of nowhere comes this guy who I always thought was overrated. But I was wrong. <laughs> Landon Donovan, <clears throat> running 400 miles an hour, comes in like a lightning bolt and puts the ball in the back of the net. And then time runs out. And at that moment, I, I think I experienced probably for one of the first times, a true exaltation, full-throated celebration where I fell to my knees screaming <laughs> because I never saw it coming. It was so incredibly dramatic. Now, imagine if this game had been, a goal like that had happened within the first couple minutes, right? So, so now it's 2-1, you know? So it's 2-1 within the first 10 minutes, and then you play the rest of the game. That's not, I mean, that's like, yeah, we won. All right, but but... But the way in which this game played out, it was um, extremely dramatic, as dramatic as it could be. Well, this morning we're going to study one of the most dramatic passages in all of Scripture, and it's the story of Joseph's revelation of himself to his brothers. And the reason I chose this passage is because we just this is where we are, we're at in, in Genesis. Um, and the reason that this passage is so dramatic is because the reversal of fortunes is so great because the story takes the brothers and us from the lowest depths 
to the highest heights. And in this way, this story is similar to the story of Jesus' death and resurrection. At one moment, the disciples thought that everything had been lost. But at the resurrection, Jesus shows himself to have triumphed magnificently in a way that they never saw coming. Even though he spoke it to them, they, they could not imagine it. Um, and isn't it interesting that God chooses to tell the story of his salvation in such a dramatic fashion? He doesn't win it in the first minutes. He wins it at the last second. The gospel is astonishing for its content and also the story of how it's actually delivered. The grace of God is a, is a victory that you never saw coming, and God loves to astonish his people with his goodness. Imagine this, and this is one of the major, major points. God chooses to tell his story and chooses to save us in such a fashion that causes our jaws to drop and fill us with amazement when we really understand it. And why does he do that? The reason he does that is because he's that kind of God. You can almost say he's a romantic. Today, as we read the story of Joseph's revelation, we need to keep in mind that God wants to tell us things about himself through it. He loves to astonish us with his grace and surprise us with his goodness. He's that kind of God. So instead of reading the entire passage before we uh, study it in depth, uh, we're going to, to do it, do, read it step by step as we go through it. So let's pray first. Our Father in heaven, Thank you that you are so obviously a passionate lover of your people. Uh, Lord, thank you for the surprising way in which you, 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 you pursue us and save us. It's, it's nothing that we deserve. It's nothing that we even saw coming. It's nothing that we could even really even know to ask for. Uh, but thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for your word. Um, Lord, teach us. Uh, teach us about yourself and uh, make us more like you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So to provide you with a bit of context with this story, the 11 brothers of Joseph are in Egypt, and this is the second time that they've been there to buy grain because of a great famine. And the first time, only 10 of the brothers came because Benjamin stayed behind. Jacob didn't want to risk anything bad happening to his second favorite son, uh, Benjamin. And so... The governor of the land there, uh, who we know is actually Joseph, the brothers don't know this, the governor has accused the brothers of being spies on their first visit. And so the governor had um, Simeon arrested and threw him into prison, and then he commanded the brothers to prove that they were not spies by bringing their youngest brother back uh, before the governor. And having brought Benjamin on this second trip, the governor released Simeon and treats the brothers to a royal feast. And now that the feast is finished, the brothers prepare to return to Canaan. Except for one small detail. Joseph has a final test for them. And you have a sermon outline in your bulletins, and the first point there is one final test. Let's read Genesis 44, 1 through 13. Then he commanded the steward of his house, this is Joseph, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain 
And, that, and he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. And when he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. And they said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouth, <clears throat> mouths of our sacks we brought back from the land of the Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. And we also will be my Lord's servants. And he said, Let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. And then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. So Joseph has devised a test for his brothers. He ordered the servant to put this silver cup in Benjamin's sack, and the brothers know that they have not stolen anything, and they know that Benjamin has not stolen anything. And that's why they mount such a solid defense. In verse 7, we see the beginning of this defense. They say, far be it from your servants to do such a thing. And then in verse 8, they strengthen their defense by telling of their previous honorable conduct, how they brought back the money that they thought had been placed in their sacks by a mistake. And then finally, in verse 9, they make their strongest defense by saying, Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. So these are the words of men who know that they are innocent. And so in verse 10, the servant agreed with the brothers, except he does not want them to pay so steep a price if they are actually thieves. He won't demand the death penalty. He only wants the one who stole it to be the, uh, the slave. And so he said, let it be as you say, verse 10, he who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. And so one by one, their sacks are searched, beginning with the oldest. And you can just imagine the scene, the tension building as each brother's sack is being searched. There are 11 of them, so it takes some time. And one by one, the search goes on until finally the youngest one lowers his sack, opens it, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And can you imagine their bewilderment? They must have felt like this was some sort of nightmare. To get the full context of, or to get the full idea of, of, of their letdown and their bewilderment with this, almost, it almost would be sufficient to say, why is God doing this to us? Or we know why God is doing this to us. This is, this is actually happening to us. This is, this is happening. And so they instantly show their outrage in verse 13 by tearing their clothes because they know that they are innocent. They know that Benjamin didn't steal the cup. And in confusion and shock, they load up their donkeys and return to the city. Now, we know that this is a test devised by Joseph, but the brothers don't know that. They don't know how the cup got in there. 
And they can't accuse the governor or his servants of having planted it because they have no proof of this. And it's also not a good defense when you're standing before the judge to say, I didn't do it. You did it. Don't do that. It's a bad defense. And fire your lawyer if he does do that. Um, And so they don't have any kind of real defense. It looks as though they really are thieves. And so in verse 14, you see their helplessness. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there and they fell before him to the ground. And Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Joseph is bluffing there. He's just intimidating them for dramatic effect. And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. So Judah and his brothers know they have no defense. They stand condemned by law. And even though they are innocent of this crime, we know that they're guilty of a far more heinous crime, which is selling their brother into slavery. And so we know what kind of men they are. They know what kind of men they are. And Joseph knows what kind of men they are. The only truly innocent one among them is Benjamin. And he's the one that's been accused of the theft. The brothers know that there is no justice in this. Yet what can they do? And so they say in verse 16, Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and also he, um, in whose hand is the cup. But Joseph said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. And so can you imagine how much this burned the brothers? Benjamin's the only truly innocent one among them, and yet he is the one who's going to be enslaved. This is the height of injustice. And Judah knows that if word gets back to to their father Jacob, he will never recover because they saw firsthand the trauma that Jacob went through as he mourned the loss of Joseph. Maybe over the years the brothers felt remorse for their actions as they saw how their father was never the same after that. How something in Jacob died when he heard the news of Joseph's death and how part of him never came back to life. Maybe the brothers realized that their sin actually made everything worse. Maybe it made everything in their lives sadder as they had to live all those years with the knowledge that they are the kinds of men who would kill their brother out of jealousy. In the book, The Sun Does Shine, Anthony Ray Hinton tells the story of the 30 years that he spent on death row convicted of a crime that he didn't commit. And one of the stories he tells is how sad a place death row is. And the reason it's so sad is because most of the men there know what kinds of men they are. They're murderers, they're rapists, they're thieves and kidnappers. They're the worst of society. And now that they're on death row, they have no escape from the knowledge of this. They're bad. And the prison bars around them and the chair down the hall are constant reminders of this. And I imagine that Jacob's sadness over losing Joseph never really left him. And the brothers most likely realized this, that they're the ones who ruined not just Joseph's life, but Jacob's life as well. And so that's the kind of men they are. But that's not the kind of man that Benjamin is. 
He's completely innocent, and he's the only, quote, real son that Jacob has left. And so in verse 18, Judah begins a lengthy plea for Benjamin. He says to Joseph, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a younger, young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left to, of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, the, the, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. Verse 24. When we went back to your father, my, to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, Go again, buy us a little food, we said, We cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. This is him talking, this is Judah talking to uh, Jacob. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. And so now Judah begins to speak directly back to, to, uh, to Joseph. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees uh, that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the, hair, the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers." For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. So there's something dramatic that's happening here. Judah has matured. And instead of leaving Benjamin to be enslaved so that he can save his own skin, he's willing to sacrifice his own life. In verse 32, it says, For your servant became a pledge of, sh- of safety to the boy, or for the boy. And the King James Version translates this word pledge by using the word surety. A surety is one who gives themselves in exchange for another. And in certain legal traditions, <clears throat> this is possible, where one person commits the crime, but another, if they're willing to, can be allowed to stand in for the guilty party and pay the penalty. So a surety, a surety, bears the punishment so that the guilty party may go free. And for Joseph, this is probably the best response that he could have hoped for, Judah's willingness to face slavery instead of Benjamin. Because if one of the brothers is willing to give themselves in exchange for Benjamin, then he will know that they have truly matured. Because being willing to sacrifice oneself for the benefit of others is a great indicator 
of spiritual maturity and love. And it matches what we know of God himself. Jesus says in John's Gospel, chapter 15, Greater love has no man than this, than one laid down his life for his friends. And so Jesus reveals to us that the highest expression of love is shown in one's willingness to sacrifice themselves for the benefit of another. And Joseph's test was meant to expose this work of God in the brothers, whether it be there or not. And Judah was willing to be a surety for Benjamin. And little did Judah know that at that moment he was resembling more closely than ever his great, 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 great grandson, Jesus. Because Jesus became a surety for his people, for you and for me. We are the ones who got caught red-handed. We're the ones with the silver cups in our bags, except that cup was not placed there by another. We actually stole it. And when the time came for judgment, our older brother Jesus became a surety for us. He stood in the judgment and paid the penalty for our sin. And it wasn't just a lifetime of slavery in Egypt that he had to endure. He had to endure the full wrath of God Almighty as he poured out his life on the cross. And so because he stood in our place and became our surety, we are free, we are righteous, we are innocent. And this is how the gospel works. One person commits the crime and another pays. In almost every other instance, this would be called a miscarriage of justice. But when the surety pays willingly, it's called grace. It's called gospel, and when it's really too good to it's too good to be true, but it's true. I remember um, in my language school uh, that I uh, was at the, when we first moved over to Germany. I was speaking with a Muslim guy. He was from Libya. He was a great guy. He was, he was a, in medical school as well, and uh, very intelligent fellow, but full on Muslim. Uh, bought into it, and his whole family did. And uh, and I remember telling him, "Yeah, that's not. You know, this is how the gospel works." and it's different from Islam. It's not the same God. It's not the same message at all. And he said, well, tell me what the gospel is. That's a great question. And so we were just speaking with him. I said, yeah, so it's really, it's, 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 really it's all grace. I mean, the, God's law is there, but we can't keep it perfectly. We don't really ever keep it fully with our whole hearts any moment of the day. Um, so it's, it's really all grace. Jesus Christ lays his life down. And so by faith in Christ making atonement, that is, paying the penalty for our sin, we, we are now are righteous. And, uh, and, and by faith, we're linked with Christ, and we're in him, and so we walk by faith, but we're still not perfect, and, and so it's really all by grace. He said, yeah, that's, that's not it. That, that's, that's not it. That's, that, there's no way that works, because then people do whatever they want. It, was, it is too good to be true, but it is true. And that's the gospel of grace. It's astonishingly good news. And by faith in Christ, you too can get in on this. You can be declared righteous, even though you're the one who committed the crime. And Jesus' willingness to be the surety for his people is a love that virtually no one saw coming. Think of it. Jog your memories. Think back to the resurrection. Was anybody at the resurrection, when they found out that Jesus was, re- was resurrected, did they go, I knew it? Totally, totally knew it. I saw it coming. No, no one. His sacrificial death. 
Did anybody say, it's horrible, it's terrible to watch, but it has to happen. It has to happen. Did anybody say that? I think the closest that I have come in my mind to, to thinking that somebody who saw it coming might have been John the Baptist. And he didn't even see it when it happened because he was already dead. Because he said in John 1, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. But I believe that John may have been above himself in the spirit saying that and not really recognizing it. So, so no one saw the, saw, saw the death of Jesus Christ coming, even though he told them, or the resurrection, because they couldn't even take it in. They didn't have the, they didn't have the categories uh, to take it in. They couldn't sense it. So who would have thought that God loved his people so much that he would be willing to send his own son to die for them? That he would be willing to take away their guilt by paying for it himself, by becoming a surety? No one saw this coming. And that's, that's how the story goes. God's that kind of God. And Judah is an early picture of this sacrificial love. Joseph has devised a brilliant test, but we know that this test and that Judah's sacrifice are God's work. And this leads us to our second point, which is the big reveal. In Genesis 45.1, we read of the impact that Judah's sacrifice had on Joseph. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Now this was not a quiet affair for Joseph as the years of pain had now come to an end. Joseph knows that he has a family again, and not just a biological family, but a spiritual family as well. For the God that has worked in him all those years that he's come to know, works in them as well. And so Joseph wept loudly. And I imagine that there there were a few moments of nothing but messy and uncomfortable emotions before Joseph could get any of the words out. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it, the household of Pharaoh heard it. Men in high places are not supposed to be like this. They're not supposed to come undone. And so just imagine what the brothers thought when their Lord and judge became emotionally unraveled before them. What is this, they must have wondered. And then come these words out of Joseph's mouth as he speaks to them in their native Hebrew for the first time, because he had been speaking through an interpreter the whole time so that he could conceal his identity, and they heard him speaking flawless Egyptian. And so here... Joseph breaks into Hebrew, accent-free. I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? Joseph drops his mask, but his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. And so Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said to them, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Now this is truly an astonishing revelation for the brothers. And Joseph knows that their first inclination will be to loathe themselves and feel guilty because they sold him into slavery. And so Joseph immediately instructs them not to look inwardly at their own culpability and it's great. They are guilty of, of murder, of man-stealing, of slave trafficking. This is bad. 
Don't look at your own culpability. Rather, look outwardly at this, at, to the staggering goodness of God. Don't think about the fact that you sold me, he says. Focus rather on the fact that God sent me. And this is instructive because Joseph is telling them point blank, don't think for a moment that the evil of your sin is greater than the power of God's covenant grace. It is no match. God made a covenant with Abraham, and he meant every word of it. Now, I think it's pretty safe to say that these boys, Joseph and Benjamin excluded, because they don't really bear the fruits of unbelief, but these boys, these ten brothers, they're, they're unbelievers. They're, just look at their lives. They're bad. If you look at uh, as, from their birth to the things that they do, uh, through their lives, even into adulthood, the sins of Judah, the sins of Reuben, the sins of, um, of Levi, and those are just some of the ones that we know. We look at how bad they are, you could say, that's unbelievers. They don't, they're not holding to the covenant promises. They're just kind of, whatever, born into it. There's no ownership there. So here are, the, here are these kids. Many, like many of you may have been, if you were raised in, in families where you were taught some semblance of, of, of the fear of God, but didn't own it. Um, these these kids grow up thinking covenant. Okay, covenant with Abraham. Okay, Isaac, grandfather, we knew him. That was great-grandfather Abraham. We didn't know him. But we, we, in Jacob, our dad, he's told us some things about some experiences, but we haven't seen anything, and, and uh, whatever. Whatever. We're just going to go live in life. And then, in this moment of peril, God explodes onto the scene with his covenant grace, explodes on it in an unmistakable way and reveals to them how he's been working all along while they have behaved in such a dastardly fashion. For so many years, in utter unbelief, God invades their lives, turns them upside down. The covenant is true. God made a promise with Abraham and he meant it. And that's the same thing that, that we hope that our children would see and that we ourselves would see, that the gospel is true, that God's word is true. Though it be, though it be strange, though it go, go against the, the culture, though it against, go against our nature, that God's word is true and that he means every word of it. It's something that you can build your life on. The gospel is something that you can build your family on. You can build a civilization and a culture on it. You can build a kingdom on the gospel. It's true. And so the evil of Joseph's brothers cannot derail God's covenant promises. On the contrary, God used the evil of Joseph's brothers to be the means by which they would be saved. And then Joseph says in Genesis 45.5, Do not be distressed. Look at how many times he repeats this. Okay? Um, do not be distressed with yourselves or angry with yourselves because you sold me for God sent me here to preserve life. For the famine has been severe in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. So he said it once in verse 5. Here again in verse 7, Joseph stresses this good providence again. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth to keep you alive uh, for you many survivors. And just in case we haven't gotten it yet, verse 8, And so it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. 
<clears throat> Three times the same thing. Why? Why? I think it's really to show us that it's a tidal wave of God's grace. This is what the covenant is. It's an absolute, unsolicited, unmerited, unasked for, didn't even imagine that I needed it, tidal wave of God's grace. That's what the, it's an invasion of, the gra- of God's grace. That's what the covenant is. And, that, and here, God is showing up that he meant what he said to Abraham. He's going to carry it out. So God has a plan for his people. And even our sin, as terrible as it is, cannot derail this plan. And so verses 9 through 15 round out this passage. Joseph says, hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children, your flocks, your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that 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 is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them, and after that his brothers talked with him. So it's a sweet reunion, and it shows us that God has a plan for his people, and even though they have terrible sin, this sin does not derail it and cannot derail it if there be faith. You know, in applying this to Jesus, consider the sinfulness of the many that led him to the cross. Many mouths condemned Jesus. Many hands were raised to wound him. None would interpose to save. Yet after his death and resurrection on the day of Pentecost, Peter preached to some of the same people who crucified him, saying, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Talk about a convicting sermon. Jesus was crucified and you did it. And so, verse 37 of Acts chapter 2. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. And so we see that some of the very same ones who crucified Jesus were saved mysteriously through the very same act that they committed. And this means that it's not finally our sin that keeps us or that, that condemns us, but rather our lack of repentance and faith in Christ that keeps us from God. It's not finally our sin that condemns us, but rather our lack of repentance and faith that keeps us from God. And so, when you're filled with regret at, about the things that you've done or left undone, and you should be filled with regret. People say, I've lived a life with no regrets. I've got no regrets. And I'm just thinking, you are blind. You're blind. How can you have no regrets? Look at the things that you have done. You know God knows. Don't be blind. You should have regret. You're not perfect. 
You need atonement. And so at this point where God has brought you with regret, with so many things that you might have done well and so many things that you might have messed up royally, doesn't matter because God's brought you here. God's brought you to this place. As a believer, as an unbeliever, God has brought you here to this place, and this is the place where you are to repent and trust in Christ and follow him because God's providence has brought you here. Just like it brought Joseph's brothers to where they were, and just like it brought the men of Israel who were instrumental in crucifying Jesus, had brought them there. God's providence brings us to this place. And if Christ will accept the very ones who crucified him, then he will accept you. You know, these brothers had a lot to think about on their way back to Canaan. Like, how could God's covenant promises still be in effect when they behaved so unworthily? Or how could God love us? And why would God choose us and want to save us? Well, God wanted to show them that he's that kind of God, that his plan is unstoppable. He loves to astonish us with his grace. He's not the kind of God that we would have dreamed up. He's unimaginably better. He's that kind of God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you how it is stupendous, how it is excellent. It's surpassing, um, all surpassing. We thank you for your plan. Uh, Lord, not just the content of it, but also the way in which it's delivered. And, and Lord, we pray that we would, um, we would live in light of this, that you are in control, that it would, that it would burn out an arrogance in us, that it would, it, would, it would destroy that arrogance in us, that it would destroy the fear that we have in us, uh, fear of men, fear of death. Uh, Lord, fear of the unknown, fear of the future. Uh, Lord, that we would place all of our hope in uh, your covenant promises. Uh, and in the one who established the new covenant with us, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving us your, your body and your blood for us. We praise you and thank you. In your name we pray, amen.